0: Hello, and welcome to Ready, Set, Retire, an audio guide packed with information to help you achieve a successful retirement. I'm your co-host, John McComb, and it's my pleasure to join Lori Pinkowski every two weeks to talk about financial and estate planning, travel, hobbies, and so much more. Whether you are planning for retirement or already living your retirement dreams, Ready, Set, Retire is for you. And, Laurie, it's never easy when a loved one is diagnosed with a serious illness. The general population, of course, is getting older and, unfortunately, sicker. More Canadians are facing life-threatening illnesses when approaching the end of life. And people living with a life-limiting illness may experience pain and other serious issues, which causes concern among families who try to relieve that pain.
1: That's right, John. You know, a common concern for caregivers and family members is whether, you know, they're really going to be able to look after their loved ones in that best possible way. Um, You know, when we're dealing with so many clients uh, who are seniors, you know, anywhere between the ages of 60 and 100, I mean, unfortunately, we tend to see these situations um, often. And so the best way to approach this is really with advice and assistance from a professional, um, somebody who's in palliative care. Uh, And this is where uh, this came about for me as my Oma uh, is in palliative care as she fell and fractured her her uh, pelvis recently and um, I saw this information there on the wall and I was wondering, you know, Um, this would be a great, great topic for our listeners just because so many people unfortunately have to deal with these serious, uh, serious issues.
0: So today to talk to us more about palliative care and how you can support your loved ones as they go through palliative care is Dr. Pippa Hawley. Dr. Hawley is a general internist by background and has been the medical director of BC Cancer's Pain and Symptom Management's Palliative Care Program since 1997. She is an experienced palliative medicine specialist with extensive knowledge in the cancer field and an experienced educator at all levels, from the public to specialists in various aspects of medicine. Doctor, welcome.
1: Yes, welcome, Dr. Holly. I'm very glad to be here.
0: Uh, let's start with a simple, basic question. What is palliative care and how does it differ, say, from hospice care?
2: Well, that's a very good question. And the, uh, the important thing for people to remember is that it has changed Um, So what it used to be 25 years ago is very different to what it is now. Um, So uh, current modern palliative care is the approach to caring for a patient which improves their quality of life but not directed at the underlying disease. Uh, But it can now be uh, provided to patients alongside disease management treatments. So People don't have to choose either having active disease management, like if they have cancer, having chemotherapy or if they have renal failure, having dialysis or renal transplantation or heart failure. They don't have to choose whether they have the, the heart failure medications and interventions or palliative care. Now that they can have both right from the time of diagnosis. So palliative care is, um, is kind of like the, the opposite of medical assistance in dying and it is medical assistance in living. So everything you need to do to be able to live as long and as well as you possibly can, whether or not you, ha- you have treatment options still available for your underlying uh, disease. Hospice care is, um, is much more akin to the old way that people thought about palliative care. Um, and hospice care really is for people who are approaching end of life. Um, there are some uh, eligibility criteria for different programs um, that de- really depend on capacity. Uh, it's, it's a form of rationing in a way. Um, and most hospice programs have a three month life expectancy as one criteria for admission. And they focus very much just on end of life, whereas palliative care includes everything right upstream. Um, and people get better with who've received palliative care. As well as get worse.
1: That makes sense and making people as comfortable as possible I'm sure and so so how do you get into palliative care and and for yourself what does your work consist of? My work is a little
2: bit different to many hospice physicians uh, because I work in a a cancer center and I operate under the bowtie model of 21st century palliative care which includes survivorship rehabilitation and survivorship as well as supportive care whilst people undergo active uh, anti-cancer Ooh. treatment and also transitioning to expected end-of-life care. So uh, my clinics are really fun. Uh, we have a, a large group of people, uh, doctors, nurse, uh, pharmacists, um, care aides. and we essentially have, we try to offer patient-centered care. So people that are identified to have palliative care needs or or feel that they have palliative care needs that are not being addressed by their regular doctors or nurse practitioners and, and the whole healthcare team, they can come to the clinic and we will basically meet them where they are with whatever problems they are. And that one of the reasons why I was so glad to be asked to do this is that um, not only is there physical, psychological, um, social, spiritual suffering, financial suffering is actually a, a significant worry for many people Um, panicking about what they need to do about finances can be really kind of scary and also it can be very overwhelming to deal with complex systems that maybe they don't understand very well. And it really is quite frightening trying to put your affairs in order, as, as they say, and having competent professionals who are able to walk them through the processes and be familiar with um, with all of the, the legal and regulatory frameworks is, is enormously helpful.
1: And this is again why we try so often to have everybody organized when they're healthy so that if something does happen that they're not scrambling to get things done. I mean, we've had lawyers go to hospitals and get wills signed, and you know, that's not the situation you want to be in. And also, just in terms of um, your comment on financial. Uh, worry, <clears throat> And, you know, if you, you're the breadwinner of the family, things like that, you want to make sure that you're insured properly as well uh, in case that you have to seek treatment um, for a long period of time uh, so that income can still continue to come in. That's something that a lot of people don't think about. Um, and, uh, and then just thinking about insurance overall. Uh, a lot of people have mortgages. Would that be paid for if something happens to you? These are questions that we bring up uh, during uh, conversations and reviews just again to make sure people are organized, so you're not scrambling at that time to to make decisions.
2: Exactly, it's much better to,
1: um,
2: as we say, you know, hope for the best, but plan for the rest. And that planning for the rest can start even when you're completely healthy. Uh, we never know what's around the corner tomorrow. And you know, I have people in their twenties who are, have serious cancer illnesses, and you know, it, it, I have also people who are in their nineties. Um, And it can affect any of us at any time. And when you're sick, that's not the time to be having to deal with things in a rush.
0: How do you know when someone is ready for palliative care? When you make that decision, what do you think about? What goes into it?
2: Well, essentially, it's about patient needs. So uh, one of the main reasons why we have referrals is because of symptoms. So if somebody has a symptom such as pain or nausea or cough or fatigue or breathlessness, Hiccups, itching, you know, there's a whole variety of different symptoms. Uh, And palliative care specialists are trained to be, you know, expert in in symptom management. That's only one reason why we see people, though it's often the kind of route in. Um, The care that we provide is not, we're not just symptomatologists. Um, We also address complex communication needs. So people that are struggling with the recognition of their mortality. And worrying about what it's going to be like to die or what it's going to be like for their families when they've died. So there's the personal and then there's the social needs. So the, the unit of care with palliative care is the patient and the family, whoever their family is. And it may not be blood relations. Um, so the patient and the family um, and trying to meet their needs in the psychological as well as the physical and the social and the spiritual realms. Uh, there's a lot of coordination as well that, um, that is often required because navigating the healthcare system seems to be increasingly more and more complicated as resources gets, get more and more stretched. And um, you know, it can be really difficult to try and access care if you don't know what exists and you don't know what you're looking for. So we can act as sort of a clearinghouse and try and identify the supports that would be helpful to the patients, even if it's not us that actually provide them.
1: And what kind of medical conditions and challenges do typical palliative care patients face? I, I'm sure it's um, a long list, and um, you know, there's uh, a lot of a lot of things that could be on that list. And and how would you? uh help them manage their condition throughout um you know and, and and again coming out of palliative care can people come out of palliative care and and be okay i guess would be another question i have
2: well a- absolutely that's that's the whole modern bowtie model of palliative care if you recognize that if you're going to get the full benefit of palliative care you have to have accessed it for long enough for the changes the interventions and the services to actually make a difference. It's, I mean, it's it's all very well when you've got two weeks left to live to have help with end of life care, but that's not going to help reduce hospital admissions. It's not going to reduce the amount of time your loved ones have to take off work to look after you. It's not going to reduce the amount of time that you have to not work if you're still if you're not retired. You know, this uh, it doesn't reduce the number of hospital admissions. It doesn't reduce the amount of chemotherapy or dialysis or whatever heart transplants that people have. So if you actually want to change. The outcomes for patients that, that are really meaningful and for the healthcare system, uh, because palliative care saves money, believe it or not, um, is you get it's active care which actually reduces costs in other parts of the healthcare system. If you accept that um, that people have to have access to care early, you have to accept that some of them are going to get better, um, and we have. Frequent people that we discharge back to the care of their family doctors, um, who have kind of graduated from our program at the cancer center. About ten percent of patients get discharged from residential hospice, where they've been admitted with a purported less than three month life expectancy, because people get better. You know, sometimes it's just because they're being fed and cared for, uh, and loved, um, and they can be transferred to a long term care facility because their condition improves so much. Or it might be because some intervention that they've had, like an immune therapy for cancer, which might take three to four months to actually start to take effect, finally starts to work. Um, so, and in the meantime, they've continued to deteriorate before they get to that um, that Im- improvement. So, definitely, uh, people can get um, can get better. Um, they also come up with new treatments all the time. And um, like, for example, one of my colleagues was saying that they've licensed seven new. Uh, breast cancer drugs in the last two years, so you know the and they don't they don't have new drugs that they prescribe unless they're very likely to be helpful. So so the the medical situation changes all the time. So it's not a one way door. Uh, even right up until the end of life, people sometimes do amazing recoveries.
1: That's amazing. I'm sure there's a. You know, that gives a lot of listeners a lot of hope because we all have family members or loved ones that have uh, have gone through cancer and, and survived or possibly not. And it's nice to hear those those positive stories for sure.
2: Yeah. And in terms of the numbers, sorry, I kind of answered part two of your question first <laughs> rather than part one. In terms of the, um, the people that are access palliative care and hospice services, It's somewhat skewed towards cancer patients because cancer patients have traditionally had a more predictable trajectory, though that's changed very much. Historically, cancer patients, uh, once they had metastatic disease, tended to have a relatively predictable rate of decline. So it made them easy to to plan care for. Um, What we've recognized now is that um, people with non-cancer illnesses have just the same, if not more, palliative care needs in terms of the physical symptoms and the psychosocial and spiritual needs. Um, and so it's ex- sort of extending now uh, to the non-cancer pa- patients a lot more. One of the issues, though, is that the disease managers, you know, the specialists in those other conditions were not t- generally trained in a, a, a palliative care environment. Like It didn't exist when I was training. I mean, I'm 60s, early 60s, you know, I didn't, they hadn't invented palliative care when I trained. And even people that are, you know, even 20, 30 years younger than me may have been trained in an environment where they had no access to palliative care because a program hadn't started. So there's this sort of trickle up phenomenon, where we're trying to train the young specialists to improve the awareness of people's palliative care needs amongst their seniors, um, and have the pioneers uh, to try and spread the culture amongst the disease managers that there are some particular conditions that that do quite well um, and there's others that don't do so well. I think heart failure and renal failure respirology have done quite well in terms of having people who are palliative care aware and, and are improving the quality of care within those illnesses but hematological illnesses sometimes do more poorly. It's been shown that people with leukemias uh, and lymphomas tend not to access palliative care as early as or as much as they uh, as people um, with other conditions and also neurological neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, the numbers of patients with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia are quite overwhelming. So palliative care specialists are never going to be able to reach all of those people with all of those conditions. Like 87 percent of the population in B.C. dies with a predictable Declining illness, a chronic illness. There's no way that we that they all need specialist palliative care, but they should be able to access primary palliative care from their care providers, either their primary care GP or a nurse practitioner, or the specialists that are looking after their disease management. And that's where we're really hoping to try to sort of expand um, the the competencies. Uh, with uh, medical training in uh, medical school and residencies and continuing medical education.
0: Just to, to follow up on that, so is palliative care only provided in a hospital setting or are there other ways that care can be delivered?
2: No, that's another soundbite. Palliative care can be everywhere, <laughs> or I prefer everywhere to anywhere. Um, so um, we have inpatient services, many palliative care units, That that's a specialist unit where, where people go and they're cared for by palliative care specialists. You can also have in-hospital palliative care consult services where the palliative care physicians and uh, nurses that work on the palliative care unit have a kind of outreach program, and they will go and see patients on a general medical or general surgical ward or in obs pediatrics, wherever, and they will help their the most responsible physicians in that program to care for their patients in, in partnership so that's in the hospital we also have home and community palliative care resources um, in in terms of physicians but also nurse practitioners nurses uh, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, spiritual counsellors, etc., nutritionists, um, and pharmacists, who all play a really important role in, in caring for patients and families with serious illnesses. And those are also available in the community, either in an outpatient clinic. Though there are not very many of them, we're very fortunate. We have one in Vancouver and one in Richmond, and also um, one that's just getting established, really, in on uh, the, the North Shore. So it is spreading. Uh, But we also um, we also have people that can come into people's homes. That's called home hospice. Um, And uh, then the last bit is the outpatient clinics, which are designated for palliative care within the cancer centers. And there's those are the kind of the major deliverers of service for um, for early palliative care for cancer patients at the BC cancer centers. In the six uh, regions, Uh, we have Vancouver, Surrey, Abbotsford, Kelowna, Prince George and Victoria.
1: And it's great that it's expanding because this is a service that so many need, um, you know, within their lifetime. And what tips do you have for coping with a terminal diagnosis? Um, Often I'm sitting across the table from a client who's almost become family because I've worked with them for so long and, and I get the news. And And, you know, there's, you know, I'm always about open communication and, you know, how do you feel about it and how do we plan, as you were saying. And and so whether it be, you know, a person who is actually the one that's being diagnosed or a spouse or a parent or a loved one or a professional.
2: I think the most important thing is to be fully informed okay, and not to shy away from what could be perceived as bad news. Once you've received the bad news that you have a serious illness... Um, then the most important thing in order for you to be able to plan for the rest, you know, as well as hoping for the best, is to become as informed as you possibly can. So you know, try to get some information on prognosis from your, um, your doctor, the one that's broken the bad news, or, or others if that one is not able to help you. Um, remembering, though, that prognostication is an art, not I mean, there is an there are elements of science to it, uh, but uh, prognostication is only some ever somebody's best guess. But it's better to sometimes have a best guess than nothing at all. Um, like if you think, oh, um, you know, I probably have only ten years, and you're thinking that's devastating, but in reality, it could be six months. Like th- people will do things differently. Um, The other one is sometimes like like somebody with breast cancer or prostate cancer where we have fabulous treatments and people can live many years with ovarian cancer, um, you know, many other conditions as well. Um, People may catastrophize and think, oh my God, it's this awful diagnosis. I I must plan to die tomorrow. And they don't realize that they have like 13 different lines of chemotherapy and dialysis can keep them alive for years. Uh, And so they kind of, do everything and then they go, oh, kind of, wow, what's happened? I haven't died yet. In fact, I feel quite good now. <laughs> I've had all these holidays and I've spent all this money on, on wonderful things. I'm feeling really awesome. And now now I've run out of money. <laughs> Panic stations, you know. I've That's had- why we're here to make sure that doesn't happen. I've seen that happen. I mean, so it's difficult. I mean, you can't take it with you. So you kind of want to time time your expenditures so that you end up with zero the day you die. But if you don't know the day you're going to die and you always want to have a safety net, then, you know, it's really complicated.
0: That's why you need Lori Pinkowski to be looking after your money, because she keeps telling me that she's never had a client run out of money before they passed. So
2: generally tend to be conservative. Yes. But it's not just the financial side of things. Uh, you know, I, I think it's important for people to recognize that there are many other needs. Um, for example, people who perhaps want to visit um, extended family, go back to the place they were born. Maybe they want to actually die where they came from, whether it's Croatia or Senegal or, you know, Brazil, you know, and if you're going to do those kind of things traveling, it's it's really important that you attend to a lot of the, the details like travel insurance and what, what kind of healthcare is there where you're going to be. And if you're going to go, how long are you going to go for? You know, going back to the Philippines to see your family and not knowing whether you're going to be able to come back or not, which has happened to a number of my patients, um, you know, it's it's, it's stressful. And sometimes the the worry about the what ifs can actually ruin the experience. So I think it's getting informed is the most important thing. And if if I can um, shamelessly do some promotion here, I actually recognized this quite some years ago. And with a colleague, Gaby Eru, who's a counselor who's um, also from the UK, like me, but based in Vancouver now, Um, we put together a book uh, called Lap of Honor, a no fear guide to living well with dying. And it's available from all the cancer center libraries for free. Um, so people don't have to buy it. We never intended to make any money out of it, but it's um, it is available and it covers all that kind of stuff, like how to travel and the need to attend to finances. But a lot of other important information, like what prognostication is and how it works, and to try to familiarise people with the kind of language that they'll need to negotiate the healthcare system. Plus, we also deal with some of the planning for the rest in terms of. Um, funeral planning and things like that. So we try to cover everything that people might need to know so that we can improve their sort of health literacy around um, living with serious illness. Uh, it's kind of like everything you, you what you need to expect when you're expecting, you know, that book that everybody's got a copy of on on the
1: shelf. The same sort of thing for For the other end of the life cycle. Exactly. Yeah. That's a smart book to have around, you know, and uh, I wouldn't mind having some copies even in my office to to give to clients who are unfortunately uh, going through a serious illness or diagnosis.
2: Okay. Well, just let me know, and I'll, I'll get you some, we actually have an event coming up on the um, 11th of October in the K-Meek center in West Vancouver. Um, where we're sharing the stage with another author from uh, in this kind of work uh, from the UK, Catherine Mannix, um, who's uh, written an excellent uh, book as well. Um, so the, the, and ours are kind of complementary. Um, so uh, people um, may may also want to look that up. She's called Catherine Mannix. Perfect. Thank you.
0: Tell me about some of the challenges, specific challenges that you've encountered in your, your work and how you've managed those challenges. Because as you pointed out earlier, this is a part of care, a part of medicine that didn't exist uh, decades ago. How has that been challenging for you as a professional?
2: Yeah, it's um, the attitudes and the misperceptions are the hardest things to overcome. When you When somebody doesn't know anything and you give them some information, they usually tend to retain it. But if somebody's already got a preconceived wrong idea, and you try to overturn it, as we know from the conspiracy theorist work, that is very difficult to do. Um, so, uh, also people get their information not from their doctors most of the time. They get it from the media. Um, they they get it from movies and uh, and from their friends and people they meet at church or at the coffee shop or their you know the buddies on the dog walk. know this is where people get their information um, sometimes from newspapers um, and and often from the internet and so trying to make sure that people recognize that um, they need to go to reliable sources of information is really helpful. We've tried to uh, provide a reliable source of information on the BC Cancer website because that's that's the only website that I have any input onto uh, because where I work but trying to make sure that people have access to good information um, so even if you don't have a cancer diagnosis, there's still lots of really good palliative care information on the BC cancer website, which is appropriate for people with other conditions. And I'd really encourage people to check it out. So that, that is the first challenge is trying to overcome misperceptions about what palliative care can offer and when people might uh, try to uh, access it. The other part um, is um, people who are so frightened of dying that they become paralysed. And they're not able to actually live. And it just seems so sad and a, and a tragic waste uh, when they uh, they have so much to offer and so much potential for enjoyment and quality of life to have it spoiled by the, this paralysis. Um, and um, that's why caregivers and family members can be so helpful because they can help to kind of negotiate the practical stuff and, and look after all that. And then that way, at least... That side of things can be um, can pick, the patients can be reassured about, and it reduces the stress levels. So then, it's really only the existential part which is requiring of attention, and um, and there, are, you know, some people never get there, uh, but many people do, and it's it's a process.
1: Yeah, I've seen a lot of families kind of divide uh, duties and whether it be financially or, you know, taking care of the house, whatever it might be. And um, and also, you know, I also try to encourage people to continue living and travel, um, you know, clients with ALS, for example, um, you know, they were still going on cruises and <clears throat> before she passed away or before she was unable to. And I think that's that is important and. I think that a family encouraging people to continue, uh, you know, achieving their goals and doing what they wanted to do, and you know, at any age, uh, I think is important. And so we we talked a little bit about hospice versus palliative care, but can you tell us a little bit about virtual hospice and how that helps complement uh, the palliative care system? Yeah, so there's there's kind of two ways of looking at
2: that. There is an actual um, entity, a non-profit called Canadian Virtual Hospice capital C, capital V, capital H, uh, that's actually based in Winnipeg, but is a national um, entity. And it's actually the most uh, trafficked uh, internet site for palliative care in the world. And it offers really excellent resources for patients and families and healthcare professionals. And they've, um, they've done work on a number of specific things. Uh, like I, I did a methadone prescribing course for them, which is accessed for free on the website so for people who need methadone for pain management which is uh, is very useful Um, there's mygrief.ca which is really helpful myculture.ca which explores the different cultural attitudes towards living with serious illness and end-of-life care in a variety of different cultures including first nations so there's canadian virtual hospice which i would definitely recommend people check out whether they're healthcare professionals or, or patients or caregivers And then uh, there's the the concept of accessing care virtually, which has really exploded since COVID. Um, And this is one of the benefits, um, unfortunately, along with the many disadvantages of having lived through a horrible pandemic, um, is that we've actually learned how to deliver care virtually, at least um, in combination with in-person care, but to supplement the care that is in, in person um, and on occasions, it's been the only way we've been able to contact people. Like I've, I've cared for people that live on Haida Gwaii, um, and in fly-in communities in the remote north. Um, and we, we've all become much better at meeting now that we can have either completely virtual meetings like on Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams, or we, um, we've been able to um, do Zoom meetings with patients some people can't do zoom but we can still manage to an extent with just just telephone um so these these tools have become really quite useful uh, a lot of hospices now have iPads that they can um have taken to the patient rooms you know obviously sanitized and everything beforehand and they can interact with people if necessary all over the world i had one family meeting a little while ago um at the hospital and i had like five people in the room including me and the patient and i had three iPads and one was in each one was in a different continent. Uh, they were the ch- five children. So all the children were able to be present, even only only two of them lived in Canada. Um, and, and they just we just had them up there and it just it was just like having another person in the room. It was awesome.
1: So one last question, you know, what can friends and family do to support themselves when a loved one is facing illness and palliative care? Because, I, again, I've seen so many families go through this and uh, I feel a lot of the loved ones kind of get uh um, are almost a little bit lost in taking care of their own mental health and well-being because they're so concerned about their loved one. And so what tips do you have for those people?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. I think it kind of is similar to what the patients need to do, which is get informed, um, find out exactly what the the issues are, um, what might be in the future as well, like trying to project forwards and predict what might happen, even if it's a worst case scenario, and then having a plan in place for if the worst case scenario happens, even if you never use it, just knowing that you have a plan in place, you can then sleep at night. You're not worrying about the worst case scenario all the time. So that's number one is get informed, get prepared. And the second one is to accept help Um, some people are very independent and they're very reluctant to ask for help. And even when help is offered, they say, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, they, they say no, and, um, they need to accept help. Uh, A lot of the time people really want to help uh, people that care for the, the person that they also care for, they want to do something, you know, and if, if their offers of help are rejected, that's hurting them. So letting people help is a gift. So if if you kind of flip it that way, you're not a burden. They they will feel better about themselves and about what they were able to do after you've gone if you've let them help you. So offer the gift of allowing people to help is really important. And be specific. Like people come often say, well, let me know if there's anything you want. But then you could think, well, ooh, could I ask them for that? Like, is it too much to ask them for a lasagna? And, you know, I, I re- what I really need is for somebody to come and help me with the laundry or to take the dog for a walk. But if they take the dog for a walk, you know, they, they're going to have to be here by a certain time. And, you know, and they, I, need, I need them to do it three times a week. Maybe that's too much. Just ask. Just ask and say, if you're not able to do it, that's totally fine. I've got other people I could ask. But this is something that would be really helpful to me. And specific, and um, and then people will say, absolutely, yeah, I'll do Tuesdays. I'm going to fund my friend. They're going to do Wednesdays, and and they'll get their daughter to do Fridays. And you know, we can share it amongst the kids on the weekend, and it'll be excellent. We can all chip in. So th- these are just examples of how important it is, I think, to accept help. There's also um, a couple of financial things which I should mention, which is the Compassionate Benefits program um, for people that are uh, that pay EI. Um, that um, that need to take time off to care for a loved one, they can get up to 26 weeks of compassionate leave uh, from the federal program. And, uh, and I, I see so many people who have taken so much time off and didn't realize that they were eligible for that. And, and unfortunately, it doesn't go retroactive. So if you think you're going to have to take time off, take it, get the benefits. It doesn't have to be taken consecutively, and it doesn't have to be taken by the same person. So the 26 weeks is attached to the patient that's sick not to the patient that's taking time off Um, and i'd really encourage them to use that uh, because it can really help uh, free you up from a lot of expenses
1: i think also one last thought is just um for loved ones taking care of of those with illnesses you know to still continue to take a walk on your own um you know do yoga exercise you know uh, go skiing once in a while, you know, I mean, do so, still yes. uh, continue to do what what you like to do uh, to to again take some time for your own mental health I think is also important and and just because September is world Alzheimer's month, uh, I just wanted to address that because again, I've got so many clients who um, have been di- diagnosed with uh, some form of dementia and I just want to ask, how is palliative care? applied to Alzheimer's patients and is that somewhat different and I know that your specialty is cancer, but uh, just if you could comment maybe for a minute on on Alzheimer's and, and how that affects uh, people and uh, in palliative care?
2: Yeah the, really only the difference is the time frame and because the time frame is so long, it's difficult to have access to specialist palliative care or have be, be cared for by specialist palliative care providers through the whole course of illness. For some, it can be many years. So the palliative approach to care has to be delivered by the people that are caring for them in their regular daytime, either like um, their family doctors, their nurse practitioner, or their geriatricians, um, various other um, services that are involved, especially in the long-term care facilities, and trying to make sure that the palliative approach to care with you know patient-centered approaches, managing symptoms, ensuring um, adequate support for psychological, social, spiritual challenges, um, that can be delivered by non-specialists as well. And if it gets complicated, then they can call in a palliative care specialist to help them. But you don't need to have a palliative care specialist to be receiving a palliative approach to care. They're sort of just like with general medicine there's the kind of general medicine that family doctors can provide for most people not everyone needs to see a specialist to manage their hypertension or their cholesterol but um, if it gets complicated or difficult there are people that they can talk to to, to get extra care like if there's really difficult behavioral issues. Um, or pain, and people like that have severe hip arthritis that can't have surgery because they have COPD and they wouldn't tolerate an anaesthetic, and things like that. There, you know, there are times when we need to get some specialist help in uh, to manage those things, and um, so the palliative care specialists can kind of dip in and out of the care over the whole duration of the illness. They don't need to be involved from beginning to end it's not like once you're in palliative care you're in palliative care like you're in deep doo-doo you know (laughs) it doesn't work like that that is good to know so again
1: that you can can be in palliative care and you can be out of palliative care I don't think a lot of people actually knew that so I think that in itself is a a big piece of information that you shared today along with so much and we really appreciate uh, you joining us today thank you so much for inviting me Uh, I hope it's useful
0: my thanks to you as well for, for joining us. Very, very uh, insightful and enlightening. Uh, if there are listeners who would like more information, where can they find it? You mentioned your book. You mentioned uh, an event at the K. Meek Centre. Uh, repeat all of that so people can take note.
2: Sure. The uh, the book is Lap of Honour, and the subheading is A No Fear Guide to Living Well with Dying. And we actually have a second um, edition uh, that's in preparation at the moment, which is going to have a slightly different title. Uh, it's uh, going to be Victory Lab because we realize that that's uh, more understood by the North American population. Um, so it's by myself and my colleague Gaby Iru, and her last name is spelled E I R E W. And as I mentioned, it's in a number of libraries, including all the BC Cancer Libraries, which are open to anybody, but um, also it's on Amazon. The event at the K-Meeks Centre is being organised by the North Shore Parts of Care programme um, called Everyday Counts. Um, and if they just Google um, Everyday Counts, uh, they should be able to find it.
0: Before we let uh, you go, we always uh, like to ask uh, ask our guests for a quote to wrap up uh, Ready, Set, Retire. Do you have a quote for us?
2: Probably the most important thing is that, um, is that people... Hope for the best, but plan for the rest.
1: That's a great one. Yeah, I don't even know if I said that. I, I
2: think we just all say it now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we appreciate you joining us today very, very much. Thank you so much for your time.
2: Okay, you're welcome. Bye
0: bye. And Laurie, we will do this again. Ready, set, retire in a couple of weeks.
1: We will, John. Thanks again for joining me.
0: And that's a wrap for this week's edition of Ready, Set, Retire. If you're interested in learning more or have any questions, please don't hesitate to call Lori and her team at Pinkowski Wealth Management, 604-695-LORI, 604-695-5674. For Lori Pinkowski, I'm John McComb. Thanks for listening, and join us again in two weeks for another edition of Ready, Set, Retire. The comments and opinions expressed in this podcast are the result of work done by Lori Pinkowski. They may differ from the opinion of Canaccord Genuity's research and should not be considered as representative of Canaccord's beliefs, opinions, or recommendations. All views expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management is a division of Canaccord Genuity Corp., member of the CIPF and I ROCK.